It's Wednesday, October 3rd, and this is The Daily Dive. Nothing left to do but just wait. The FBI is getting its investigation into Brett Kavanaugh wrapped up and should be out soon. But the public won't know what's in it, unless something leaks. All senators will have a chance to see the report in a secure setting. Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico, joins us for what's going on in the investigation and when we can expect a vote to confirm Kavanaugh. Next, we have a great story that involves winning the lottery, drugs, bank heists, and a PT cruiser. Natalie O'Neill, contributor to The Daily Beast, joins us for the story of the PT cruiser bandit, a man who hit it big winning $19 million in the lottery, then losing it all and turning to robbing banks out of desperation. It's been called the lottery curse, where you win a ton of money and then have a spectacular fall. And Jim Hayes was definitely a victim of that curse. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Hopefully, as Mitch said, they'll have a vote by the end of the week and it will be a positive vote, but it will be dependent on what comes back from the FBI. It's a very scary time for young men in America when you can be guilty of something that you may not be guilty of. It's a very difficult time. Joining us now is Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico. Let's catch up on this whole confirmation process for Judge Brett Kavanaugh. The FBI is conducting a report on allegations that at least three women have come saying he was inappropriate. The latest is that Mitch McConnell, Senator Mitch McConnell, has said that the FBI report, whatever's in it, is not going to go public. All the senators will have a chance to review it, but they're not going to make any of it public, not even in a redacted form. There's some institutional reasons for that. They want to make sure people cooperate with the FBI future and sort of a what you'd probably call standard practice, but in a case that's so highly publicized and so significant, a, a swing vote on the Supreme Court, that's not going to be acceptable to a lot of people. Also going to be hard to imagine a hundred senators seeing oh, yeah. this report in a confidential setting and keeping it secret. Uh, it's very hard to do uh, even with much smaller groups. There's lots of room for a leak or any little leak of certain details. The senators are obviously right. going to speak to their staff and then that's how we know <laughs> the reporters have very good relationship with staff members. And that's how things get out. Senator Majority Whip John Cornyn even said that people will know what the FBI said before we end up mm-hmm. voting. They might even want to release some type of summary. Like you said, there's so much public interest in this. I can't imagine them not right. saying anything about it. Exactly. And because all the entire Senate will see it, if anyone's mischaracterizing what's in it or cherry picking different pieces of it on either right. side, you're going to see a pressure to really put the whole thing out. It would really prevent that kind of selective leaking, which we see sometimes with these kind of confidential reports. The FBI investigation was only supposed to last a week. Senators have said, indicated that it could be sooner than Friday or so when we get all the information. Have they scheduled a vote yet? I know there's like some precarious timing that Mitch McConnell has to work Mm -hmm. on when the report comes out and when they actually do the vote. McConnell has indicated he wants to vote this week, which could be as soon as Friday. Whether that's listened to next week is really up to a handful of Republican senators, the ones who could make the difference in this vote. And if they say, hey, we're not we're not comfortable with this timeline, we don't feel like we have enough information yet or the FBI didn't do a thorough enough investigation, they could push it. They could they could force his hand on this. Let's get into some of these other stories that have come out since then. I know NBC had a report about 
about some of the timing of when Judge Kavanaugh knew of some of the allegations against him. And then the New York Mm -hmm. Times had a story about Judge Kavanaugh being involved in some type of fight where police questioned them. What do we know about those stories? This whole issue of did did Kavanaugh perjure himself or mislead the Judiciary Committee is becoming an increasingly loud refrain from from Democrats and his critics because there are things that sort of stretch the bounds of, of, oh, you know, I never attended a party like the one that Christine Blasey Ford described, even though what she described was kind of a, a small gathering of friends. And, and so the things that just raised questions, there was no obvious place where he, where the record completely contradicts him, but there were things that were they, where people just said that's hard to believe. And so they're wondering if the FBI is going to stumble on or find evidence of actual perjury or, and they want the FBI to be looking at that. They're increasingly trying to paint this picture of Brett Kavanaugh, that he was a sloppy, mean drunk. He was at a concert and uh, right. throwing ice to like instigate right. a fight where, and then one of his friends threw, like a bottle at some guy and hit him in the ear and police did question them but nobody was arrested nothing really came of it. Right. And so to the people who support him they, they think this is a reach by his critics. They say look they can't prove these sexual assault allegations which would be truly disqualifying so they're reaching back to these things about his character things that are also difficult to prove but that might cast him in a different light than he presented himself in the hearing. Democrats say look his character matters. He presented himself one way and if that's not actually who he is or who he was then his honesty is in question. NBC report on when he first learned about Deborah Ramirez's allegations against him mm-hmm. seems a little more interesting because uh, he he mm-hmm. testified saying, "Oh, I didn't hear about it until the New Yorker story came out." And uh, NBC News has uh, you know texts going between Kavanaugh right. and groups of friends saying, "Hey, you know, if anything comes out about this or something, can." Can you testify on my behalf or something like that? So people are making this a bigger deal. Did he perjure himself? Right. It's all going to be in the details. Is, is you know how explicit is it? Is it a gray area? Perjury is hard to prove, especially before Congress. It's got to be real intent to mislead and lie to the committee. And if he spoke even in shades of gray, then you know that's not really an avenue they're likely to pursue. We're just waiting now for the FBI report and then the final vote, obviously, on whether he will be elevated to the Supreme Court. Is there anything else that we should know in the meantime? Are senators saying anything? What's the buzz about this? Just got to keep your eye on, on Jeff Flake, Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski. They're, they are the three that will decide if this vote happens or if, if, it, if McConnell forces it, whether he'll be confirmed or not. A handful of Democrats on the fence, too, but they're not the ones who are going to drive this process. So we're all just watching everything they do and reading the tea leaves. Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Serial bank robbers on the loose in the Santa Clarita Valley. Detectives say the suspect robbed at least five banks in the area between June and August. His getaway car was a light-colored PT Cruiser. Investigators say he's made off with thousands of dollars. Joining us is Natalie O'Neill, freelance journalist and contributor to the Daily Beast. I love these types of stories. They're just so interesting. It's got... uh, Money, winning the lottery, bank robberies and heists and ups and downs. It's It has everything. And we're going to be talking about a guy named Jim Hayes, who was later known as the PT Cruiser Bandit. Tell us who he is and what happened to him. And then we'll get into all sorts of details because it just goes all over the place. And it's one of those things, you know, people want to win the lottery all the time. They want to hit it big. And like I said, it's a cautionary tale. It's one of those things, one of those possibilities There's a thing called the lottery curse where bad stuff ends up happening to people who come into money so fast. So 
Who is Jim Hayes and what happened to him? So Jim Hayes was a security guard who back in the late 90s won $19 million in the California state lottery. (laughs) And then over the course of the next two decades, sort of amazingly managed to lose it all. And then after losing it all, became a pretty successful bank robber, got away with 10 of them in the L.A. area before he was then caught by the FBI last year. So I just had been talking to him. He's in prison now and he's been writing letters. So he kind of ended up telling me everything that happened in between the time that he won the lottery and started this kind of life of crime. My first question here is, how do you strike up a relationship with a former bank robber guy in prison? How do you broach the subject of tell me your story? (laughs) I called his lawyer and we had a good rapport. His lawyer then told me, you know, I have a hunch he's going to be the kind of guy who wouldn't mind telling his story. So why don't you send him a letter in prison and just see if he's up for it? He had already pled guilty and he was waiting for his sentencing hearing at the point that I contacted him. So he basically, before we started talking, wanted us, wanted to wait until he had been sentenced in case anything in the article came out that he felt like, you know, maybe made him look bad. So basically I just wrote him a really personal handwritten letter saying, hey, I am fascinated by what I've read about you. I want to know more. Can we talk? Can we can we kind of be pen pals? And he wrote me back. And then I send him a list of like five or six questions, just hoping he might get back to me. And he wrote me back just this like really amazingly like upbeat letter with like a really <laughs> good sense of humor wow. and like a lot, lot of exclamation points. <laughs> just not what I expected at all, like in terms of tone. Right. So I was like, oh man, now I'm even more fascinated by you because you don't seem to be bummed out about the fact that now you're doing three almost three years in federal prison he kind of has this happy-go-lucky even now kind of attitude which is after just- everything he has been through well, well let's start with some of the good stuff then so he won 19 million dollars in the lottery it was actually 13.7 million once taxes were taken out a crime in and of its own so you got uh, shorted about five million dollars out of that he was getting 20 annual payments of about $684,000 every year. What did he spend his money on? What was that life like after he hit it big? At first, it was just super extravagant. He bought, I think, a total of at least 17 exotic sports cars. So he had Ferraris, Lamborghinis, Bentleys. He was like a very into cars. And so just dumped a ton of money into that. I think it was might have been his first wife who said that all that money changed him. And he had this hotsy totsy attitude <laughs> after he won. I love <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, that was his long term girlfriend. She saw him change. She met him, I think, when they were teenagers. He was 17 and they stayed together for 15 years. And so she saw him change towards the end of their relationship. He was uh, partying with actors. He had a personal photographer at some point, which I thought was pretty interesting. 
He said he raced Lamborghinis with Mario Andretti and everything. Whatever you're going to do to live life to the fullest, beachfront houses, actress, girlfriends, that whole thing is what he was all doing. So, And that's what happens. Later on in the article, someone was saying, that's what happens to these people. They hit it big. They're thrust into like another subset of social life now, and they're not ready for it. And they don't know how to really interact in that when they come up with so much money. Exactly. Yeah. And the way that his second wife explained it to me was that, look, you know, that he's a guy from kind of a middle class upbringing. He was working in the security field. He had he really had no sort of concept of wealth management or like the smart things you can do. And he didn't really care. Like he was just kind of high off of the adrenaline and the new money of it all and the status. And he made a lot of bad decisions with his money. And yeah. I think he'll tell you that too. He was just not really kind of living in the moment and not really thinking about the future and not investing and just blew a lot of it in those first years. Another uh, funny little tidbit was his first wife was named Stephanie. His second wife also named Stephanie. So <laughs> there's something to be had there. But yeah, it's weird. But let's talk about where things started to go bad for him. He had a previous injury, work-related injury, and he suffered from three herniated discs. And then as a lot of people in this country go through, I mean, there's a huge opioid epidemic right now. He got stuck on painkillers. He was prescribed Vicodin, Norco, Oxycontin, and he got hooked. And after that, a lot of the money, you know, he's living life large, and then a lot of the money was also being spent on these painkillers. That is a big part of it. And that, but just backing up for a second, I think when things really kind of started to go south, just in terms of money, it was after he separated from his first wife, she got half of all of those $680,000 paychecks. So immediately it's not that much. Every yeah, she year. was getting half. I think he, she was getting like 300 grand a year from that. That ballpark. And then, and then that's before income tax. It sounds like a ton of money and it really is a lot of money to you and me, but right. a ton of it gets taken away. And then you think about how much his wife gets. It's not as crazy amount of money as you would think. But so, yeah. So anyway, he was already not quite at that level that he was in the late nineties when he first won in terms of wealth and then hurt his back and got hooked on, on like so many Americans, it seems like these days do, you know, had easy access to these pain pills without really knowing it just got totally hooked. And things rolled from there. He, um, had some bad luck. He ended up moving into like a friend's garage. He was just stuck. He had no money. He had nothing to do. And the way he finally convinced himself to turn to robbery, to turn to robbing banks, ended up being he was listening to 80s metal music with his cat. The idea popped in his head. And then he started listening to Judas Priest breaking the law. And by the time that song ended, breaking the law and just the words and the lyrics coming out of it, he decided, I'm going to rob a bank. I'm going to do this. He was doing research. His first robbery ended up being super easy to him in his head. How did that first robbery go? His first robbery, he walked in past a teller, a very scared female bank teller, a note demanding cash. He had no weapon on him and she handed it over and he was out the door in, in three minutes. And I think he was kind of shocked at how easy it was. It was like just sort of emotionally for him. He had to really like talk himself into like pep himself up and in terms of like getting himself pumped enough to do it. But then after he was really shocked at just how easy it was to get away with it. And he got hooked. It was a rush for him. I, I think from uh, you know you speaking to him, he said that that poor teller was right at a central casting. She looked like a librarian and was terrified. And it's that weird thing. You never forget your first. And that was his first rush and thrill. And it worked. 
and he started doing research to keep it going. He obviously had a drug problem at that point. He went from painkillers to heroin and he needed to feed that habit. And this is what he was doing. And he had pretty good success. He hit nine out of 10 banks. 10 out of 11, but still he was on a roll. And also this, you have to kind of remember, this is on the heels of, okay, not long after he got hooked on pain pills, the condo that he was managing completely burnt down and he lost all of his possessions. So it's kind of this weird switch from, oh, hey, I have so much good luck in my life to everything is going wrong. I'm now I have nothing. I'm addicted to heroin and I can't have access to the money that I used to just get so easily every year. He's kind of feeling sorry for himself at this point and it's not hard for him to justify and in his brain think that this is a victimless crime. Right. That the that you know, he's not hurting anyone. He doesn't have a gun. And he was never violent with anybody. He never even had a gun. He told people he did, but he never had one. So I mean, I think that helped later on <laughs> with his sentencing. They called him the PT Cruiser Bandit. And I, I live in the L.A. area, so I remember this a couple years ago when this was going on, seeing it in the news and, and following this. Bank robbers have always fascinated me. So he bought that PT Cruiser with the money that he had been stealing, and that was his getaway car. How did F the FBI actually catch him? Like, when did things turn? I know one of the things was a huge mistake. He hit the same bank twice. So he hit it once successfully, and then he is kicking himself for this now, but then went back not too long later, hit the same bank, but a teller recognized him that was there before. So he fled without any money at that point. And the lead investigator who was kind of starting to get onto him at this point said, all right, he just failed. I know he's going to hit again soon. And I know from this map that I've drawn out that I have a pretty good hunch that he's located all along this same thoroughfare because here is where all of this, it's the thing that connects all of these banks. So after that failed robbery, they set up a camera along the highway and basically we're just looking for this, knowing that he was probably going to strike and knowing his, what his vehicle was, set it up. And then when inevitably he hit again, and I don't think it, it wasn't too much later in terms of timeline, it was definitely less than a month. Then knowing that he'd hit again, just synced it up with the right. timeline of when the bank had occurred and then went through the camera footage. They got a, a help from a tip. You know, the bust at his house was very dramatic. He was walking out of the garage and they cornered him with AR-15s and Glock pistols and got him and boom, then he was arrested. He ended up being sentenced to 33 months in prison, three years of supervised release after that, you know, when he would get out and he had to pay back the money and restitution. His release date is February 23rd, 2020. So he still has a little bit of time in there. What has he been doing with his time there? And what are his plans after he gets released? He's been making art in prison. He's good at drawing. Every letter that he sent me had like some sort of oh, <laughs> super wow. elaborate picture on it. Like one had Garfield on it. You think he's a cat guy. Oh, you have to post uh, some of those on Twitter or something. I mean, so people can oh, see. Yeah. He wants to publish a book at the end of this, right? He's working on it on a book. I know that he's he's like playing softball. He says he's exercising and that he's kind of like tapped into his more spiritual side. He has a funny, like optimistic view of all of it now because he said like, look, I'm clean and sober now. It's yeah. kind of like forced detox. <laughs> For the better, he even said himself that it helped him more so than the money ever did. And that's why I, I mean, I love these stories. It's 
that rise and fall. It's coming into something and, you know, everybody internalizes it. Like, what would you do? How would I react? This happened to me. And it's just a crazy story from being on the highest of highs to being so desperate that you have to turn to bank robbery. And then obviously, you know, you get caught. You know, nobody ever gets away with anything at the end of it. Natalie O'Neill, contributor for The Daily Beast and freelance journalist. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.